Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dean Seal. Hey, great to be here. And Haley Knoth. Hey, Amber, glad to be back. So for listeners who maybe weren't with us last week, Alex Lawson is out on paternity leave. So I have officially dropped the guest from your all's titles. Dean and Haley are going to be with me at least until he's back. Um, so really happy to talk with you guys. Us too. We finally made it, Kaylee. We finally made it. Finally, no more, finally. No more guests. <laughs> I mean, big leagues, guys. Big leagues. Uh, so one thing I did want to bring up and talk about a little bit, I was woken up one morning this week by my husband just saying the phrase, Washington Commanders. Ooh. Finally <laughs> here at uh, long last. Yeah. What a like ominous wake up. Uh, it, it was jarring. I mean, the, the listeners of the show know I'm not a big sports person, but I did live in D.C. for about 12 years. So I guess that maybe evens out. Um, but what does everybody think of the new name for the Washington football team? Well, so I can say I've been in D.C. for most of the last two years, actually. I just came back to New York. Um, so I still follow some Washington news. And the news was actually broken a day early. Some uh, Washington reporter, TV reporter, caught them putting up a, what is it, like a billboard with that name on it. So. Uh, my girlfriend had already seen it, and then we played 20 questions to see if I could figure out what it was. Oh, nice. And I got it in 10, and I think that says a lot about wow. how utterly generic this name is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't love it when I first heard it, but I did see a tweet later this week that made me kind of warm to it. And the tweet hmm. said that they could rename the stadium the Command Center. Wow. Nice. I'm fully in. Yeah. 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 I mean, all it takes is one good, like, dumb pun, and then I'm fully back on board. And I mean, anything is better than what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I sort of brought up sports because our actual main segment on today's show is with our sports reporter, Zach Zagger. And he's coming on um, to have a talk with Dean and I about a pretty bombshell discrimination complaint that a former head coach has filed against the NFL. So really a ton to talk about with Zach and sort of get the lay of the land of what could be some some real heavy allegations that follow the league for a while. Yeah, Zach really dug into it. And uh, I, it's, you know, it's quite a topical week for the NFL, but this really gets to the core of the NFL right now and its race issues. And Zach really broke it down for us. I'm really excited to hear the interview you guys did. Amber, I... I feel the same way about the NFL as I do about The Bachelor, which is that I'm like complicit in something so evil, but I <laughs> but I can't stop. I think that's a great analogy. I also have this vibe of like, why are people still watching football? Why are people still watching The Bachelor? And it's just like, well, everyone else is doing it and talking about it. So I don't want to be left out. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. definitely a motivating factor for me in The Bachelor. So. Oh, yeah. Got to be part of the discourse. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is going to be a hard pivot. But for our first news story, I think we're going to go far away from the world of sports and instead talk about some tech giants and what they're up to with self-driving cars. Yeah. So Waymo, which is the self-driving car unit of Google's parent company, Alphabet, has asked a California court to stop the DMV from publicly releasing its crash data and what's interesting is Waymo is arguing in its lawsuit that the data is a trade secret that could provide, quote, strategic insight to competitors and third parties. That's not what I expected you to say as the reason. So I want to unpack all this, but maybe we need a little groundwork first. Yeah. What's the backstory on these alleged trade secrets? So according to the complaint, someone, um, they are not named, 
filed a request under the Freedom of Information Act to get a bunch of info Waymo had to give the DMV for a permit allowing its vehicles on public roads. And Waymo says its permit application included a ton of sensitive information and that it stamped confidential across a lot of the documents it handed over. So when the DMV first responded to the records request, it agreed to redact that information. Um, But whoever made this request challenged a lot of those redactions. And now the DMV has basically said, Waymo, it's on you to prove that it's not subject to disclosure here. Otherwise, we're just going to release it. I'm very much getting we want no part in this vibes from the DMV. Aren't those the current vibes of the of DMVs everywhere about everything? <laughs> it's on <laughs> Actually, brand. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it's worth noting that Waymo says its vehicles have already driven more than 20 million miles on public roads. The company started test driving in San Francisco in 2009. So the records request here has to do with an application Waymo submitted early 2021. Gotcha. So what exactly is Waymo hoping to keep hidden in this situation? Yeah, my mind is reeling with the possibilities of like a bunch of crashes we don't know (laughs) about or something really terrible. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't quite as juicy in the complaint, um, but it basically points to a whole laundry list of details that it doesn't want competitors to see. That's how it's, you know, framing it. Waymo said its DMV application includes the company's internal analyses of collisions involving its vehicles what happens in emergency situations, and what the vehicles do when they're operating in places they're not designed to operate. And the company also told the DMV how it's tweaked the technology to address issues that it saw in testing and, I assume, on public roads. And that's where they're making their big argument that 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 is proprietary internal processes for assessing and, if necessary, remediating the circumstances that led to these crashes. So I see how they're really posturing here in the complaint to make this sound as much like a trade secret as a business possibly can. But, you know, our spidey senses as journalists say that the FOIA was probably from some journalist out there that wanted the info. Uh, Yeah, I'm very curious who it is. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so are we thinking this is going to fly as a trade secret? It seems like a creative argument to just have data you don't want the public to know to stay secret. Yeah, well, Waymo told the uh, Sacramento Superior Court that autonomous vehicle technology right now is highly competitive and publicly revealing that information would give um, its competitors unique insight into its approach and strategy Um, And on top of that, Waymo said that the disclosure would have a chilling effect across the industry, which I suppose is kind of key to the argument it's trying to make here. But it's basically saying that companies won't want to get into the autonomous vehicle space if they know they have to disclose this information to DMVs everywhere. But specifically, Waymo pointed to the California Privacy Rights Act. And according to Waymo, that law means the DMV is required to withhold trade secret information from its response to requests. Gotcha. So, I mean, what is the DMV actually saying on this? Have they spoken out about this lawsuit? It seems like they really want the courts to make the call here. Gotcha. The whole reason this lawsuit even happened is because the DMV essentially told the company, get yourself an injunction or this is going to be released. (laughs) And on Monday, uh, a judge actually granted a temporary restraining order that gives Waymo 22 more days to make its case. 
uh, without that data being disclosed, obviously. And what's important to note here is the DMV did not oppose that application. Um, so they're really just like, sure, take the time you need, but show us the injunction. <laughs> why, why am I getting this sort of like bureaucracy, this sort of vibe of when you go to like one government building and they say, oh, no, you have to file this form with this other department and they send you somewhere else. I, I get this <laughs> Dang, same vibe. It's, <laughs> it's because you've been paying attention and we're talking about the DMV. Like, of course you're <laughs> oh getting that vibe. <laughs> it's really part for the course. <laughs> I'm not familiar with uh, Sacramento Superior Court, like where it's located and such, but I would love for the DMV to be like next door. And they were just like, hey, so you're going to want to take this form. You're going to want to go next door, go to the fourth floor. <laughs> right. Find the right clerk. Get yeah. in that line. Let me know how it goes. Wow. Well, fascinating, Haley. I'm, I'm sure we're going to be keeping up with this one as it makes its way through the court. So switching gears now, or coasts, I should say, we got some big news out of the Second Circuit last week that's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, particularly from Wall Street and the white-collar defense bar and really anyone who's interested in the world of financial crime. So on last Thursday, an appellate panel decided to overturn the convictions of two former Deutsche Bank traders who were charged with fraud in connection with the federal government's sweeping criminal investigation into widespread manipulation of the London Interbank Offered Rate, better known as LIBOR. Okay, so um, I was super on your side, Dean, when you started with like, <laughs> financial crimes, and that can be like fun and exciting. And then we mentioned LIBOR. And while I do know what that is, some other people may not be as enlightened about government rate setting and, and how that all works. So could you just give us a quick rundown of, of what's up with LIBOR? No, very understandable. So as a brief catch up, um, LIBOR is an interest rate benchmark that's based on the estimates that are these estimates that are submitted by more than a dozen global mega banks about how much it would cost to borrow from one another. So for a really long time, LIBOR was extremely important. If we're just going to pull it way back, it's this extremely important figure in international finance because it gets used as pretty much the baseline for setting interest rates on all sorts of contracts and loan agreements. So we're talking mortgages, big exotic financial products, you name it. But things started to unravel for LIBOR in 2008, circa the global financial crisis, when regulators in the US and the UK started questioning these estimates that were getting submitted by the banks. Now, remember, these estimates were self-reported, so ultimately they could be inflated or deflated in ways that could benefit the bank's holdings, or, and again, this was 2008, cover up some financial trouble that these banks might be dealing with. So pretty soon, these investigations turned into a major scandal that saw big banks paying billion-dollar settlements and individual bankers and traders getting criminally charged with coordinating with each other to rig LIBOR. So LIBOR started to view as something of a joke. And as of this year, actually, it's officially dead. That may be the only thing that died after the financial crisis. It's the one <laughs> true casualty was LIBOR. Absolutely. Um, so now in this particular case that we're talking about at the Second Circuit, there were several, many individuals who were charged in the U.S. And among them were two derivatives traders at Deutsch. And they were charged with criminal fraud for pressuring the bank's LIBOR submitters to adjust those estimates that they were submitting in ways that could benefit Deutsch's derivatives positions. So while a lot of other individuals were charged in a pleading guilty, these two actually took their case all the way to trial and lost. That's uh, because at trial, federal prosecutors were showing the jury emails and chats from these traders asking for the estimate adjustments. And the uh, prosecutors even brought in the LIBOR submitters themselves to testify. And those submitters said that they knew altering these submissions to LIBOR was wrong and that it was only intended to help the bank out. So the two traders were sentenced to home confinement in 2019, but they continued to appeal their convictions. 
And last week, they prevailed. The Second Circuit kind of agreed with this argument uh, coming from the traders that what they were doing wasn't actually fraud. So according to the Pellet Court, writing, they wrote that the evidence at trial hadn't shown that what the traders were doing actually caused LIBOR submissions to be false. It's a little complicated, but essentially the court was saying that these LIBOR submissions were subjective. And so if they were adjusted, but still served as a potential estimate of what the banks could borrow from one another, then it's not fair to say that the end result of these of the pressure that was being put on actually defrauded anyone out of money. So what's really important here is that the appellate court noted in their order that the federal fraud statutes that were underlying this entire case are not, and this is in the words of the court, catch-all laws designed to punish all acts of wrongdoing or dishonorable practices. Haley, I'm going to send you some chats. Um, we're going to talk about some important bank rates or really anything else you want to. <laughs> as long as we're not directly defrauding people out of money, we're good. People can look awesome. up those chats later on and it won't matter. I mean, yeah, I, I was going to say like, OK, so <laughs> so what is fraud? Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? Like it seems like from an outside perspective, just a lay person that doesn't follow these white collar crime statutes closely or anything like that. Uh, if this isn't fraud, Dean, what is fraud? <laughs> right. So, I mean, that, that's what's kind of fascinating about this case and what's generated a lot of discussion, um, because a lot of attorneys I spoke to are saying that this, this kind of undercuts, as you guys are saying, undercuts the entire theory of the government's case, the theory that, um, uh, you know, underlied all these criminal charges and guilty pleas and billion dollar settlements, um, that what was actually happening was fraud. You know, that's, they're, they're saying this goes from wrongdoing to fraud, and the court is saying no. Um, and it's fascinating because the Department of Justice, they poured tons of money and resources into this investigation, and that's all kind of been undercut now. But that said, not everyone agrees with the court's analysis here. I've talked to some former prosecutors and regulators who tell me that the court is pretty much setting up some technicalities here uh, that let fraudsters off of the hook, and not necessarily for nefarious reasons, but they're trying to set a really high bar for the government to bring these sorts of fraud cases. Um, now, Perhaps expectedly, the corporate defenders who I spoke to about this case are cheering on the, the court's analysis. They say that the government uses these very narrow fraud laws to try and punish all sorts of conduct that they consider to be wrong, but may not technically be illegal. But people on the other side of that argument say fraud laws are supposed to do that. They're supposed to protect the financial system from this exact kind of manipulation. So a ruling like this, it just... it sort of undercuts the DOJ's prosecutorial powers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, when you look at what the DOJ is up to in the area of white collar crime, um, many people would argue they're already not prosecuting enough people. And this is yet another roadblock that would make it even harder. So is the DOJ just going to sort of back away from more of these Wall Street prosecutions? Right. So well, it's hard to say kind of for the reason you just pointed out. I mean, since the financial crisis, there's been a lot of pressure on the DOJ and regulators to hold individuals accountable when for these types of corporate crimes. Um, and at the same time, you know, this case could still be appealed. The DOJ can appeal and try to get the full Second Circuit to take a look, maybe even Supreme Court. And a lot of people I spoke to think that that's a pretty high possibility that they are going to do that. And also, when I talked to a few different former prosecutors, they said that this administration in particular has said, we are going to be trying to get individuals and white collar criminals to rebut some of that, that reputation that you guys were just bringing up, the sense that nobody ever actually goes away for financial crimes. So 
all that said, the one thing that we have to remember as we're talking about this case is that you can kind of chalk it up, too, to how weird LIBOR was. I mean, this thing is no longer being used for a reason. Right. It was effectively this honor system for the banks to say, yeah, this is how much we, you know, this is how much we are willing to, to use. And they didn't necessarily have to always show their calculations there. So we might not actually see another fact pattern like this. But, you know, it remains to be seen if the DOJ is going to take this one on the chin or not. NFL biased? That's the question everyone's asking this week after a black former Miami Dolphins head coach sued the league for alleged systemic racism in the NFL's hiring process. Here to talk with us about these allegations is our own sports reporter, Zach Zager. Welcome back to the show, Zach. Hi, thanks for having me on again. Oh man, uh, tons to talk about here, but let's set people up with just a little background first. The coach who filed suit this week is a man named Brian Flores. What should we know about him? Yeah, uh, Brian Flores, uh, you know, he's a black coach uh, in the NFL. Uh, He was born in Brooklyn to Honduran immigrants. Uh, He started with the Patriots as a scout, actually, and then had a number of roles, worked his way up uh, as to be an assistant coach, had a number of assistant coach roles uh, with the Patriots, won four Super Bowls with them. In 2019, he got his first chance to be the head coach uh, of an NFL team when he was hired by the Miami Dolphins. However, after only three years with the Dolphins, he was promptly fired uh, last month. He, he had some success with the Dolphins as well. He went 24 and 25 over his three years, but his last two years were winning seasons. Uh, in fact, uh, first two first back-to-back winning seasons for the Dolphins in 20 years. Right. So I, I remember when Flores was leaving, there was still a lot of talk about where he might go next because of those winning seasons, like you had said. So let's dig into these allegations a little bit. What, what happened after he started interviewing? Yeah, so he uh, well, obviously he filed suit this week uh, alleging discrimination. Uh, and in the suit, he says that he had a job with or had an interview lined up with the Giants. Uh, but before that interview went through, he found out uh, through a mistaken text message he received from his former head coach, uh, Bill Belichick, that uh, congr- it was initially congratulating him on getting the job. Then they realized it was a mistake. He meant to he either meant to congratulate somebody else or texted the wrong person. But whatever, whatever it may be, he found out that he wasn't getting the job, that the Giants were actually going with somebody else. So three days later, he goes and he sits through an extensive interview, including a, a dinner with uh, the, the GM of the Giants, Joe Schoen, uh, and basically says he went through the whole thing knowing that he wasn't going to get the job and was rather humiliated by it uh, and called it another example of a sham interview. And he said it wasn't the first time he had a sham interview. He's, he, he had similar allegations against the Broncos. Uh, not that he went in not knowing that he had the job, but when he got there, he said, uh, then GM John Elway, uh, famous white quarterback in the league, serving as uh, GM, and uh, some of the other executives showed up. They looked uh, like they had been drinking all night. Uh, and he said that the over the course of the interview, he could tell that it was really not serious. And so he says this is a common experience from a lot of head coaches across the league, that they go in and they get these sham interviews. Let's break down a little bit of why they're could be sham interviews. I mean, we don't know really what's true versus alleged here, but if we think sham interviews are happening, Zach, why would that be? Why would they bother doing that? Yeah, well, across the league, there's very few head coaches who are black. Uh, Right now, there's only one under contract. There's there's some vacancies open that could change. Uh, But for years, 
um, there's been allegations that black coaches haven't had the same opportunities as white coaches. So about 20 years ago, the league started using this rule called the Rooney rule named after a former uh, the late owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Dan Rooney, uh, basically requires uh, teams to hire, or not hire, I'm sorry, to interview uh, minority candidates uh, for head coaching and other high-level coaching and its coaching jobs, and it's been expanded to um, executive roles. And as the rule currently is, stands, um, teams are supposed to hi- uh, interview at least two minority candidates for head coaching jobs each time one comes available. So, there's a lot of these interviews being handed out to black coaches and candidates, uh, but very few are getting hired. Yeah, it seems like we have a real bottleneck here where they're meeting the letter of that rule by interviewing people, but not actually following through to making the offers to those candidates. Right. And that's what Flores alleges. They, these teams are basically just checking the box of compliance with the rule without seriously considering uh, these black candidates, many of whom are very well qualified, including himself, who you know, he was a successful coach in the league. I mean, he proved that he could lead an NFL team to a winning season. I mean, not to back us up too much, but it is also pretty ironic how he allegedly found out that he wasn't a true contender for the job. It was an errant text message from Bill Belichick. It just, you know, that it, without that, he would perhaps have gone into the interview thinking it was more legitimate than he ultimately believes that it was. Uh, yes, and it's really interesting that this happened. I think help, you know, bolster the lawsuit. I mean, Bill Belichick doesn't speak for the Giants, of course, but it shows that you know the the Giants may have been you know telling people that they had already made a decision before they even interviewed Brian Flores, which would show that they weren't really giving him proper consideration. Uh, and it's kind of funny. I mean, the the coach that the Giants did hire, his name is Brian Dable, uh, and, and Brian Flores is also has the name Brian. So. It right. seems that either Bill, the Belichick got confused. Yeah, either either he was told that they were going with Brian and he assumed it was Brian Flores or he texted the wrong Brian. Either way, uh, it was kind of a mistake. And I'm sure like if this proceeds, you know, Bill Belichick's going to be deposed or like there's going to be more information about how he found out about uh, the hiring of Dable beforehand. So, Zach, is the lawsuit primarily about this interview situation, this Rooney rule, or were there other um, sort of allegations about systemic racism in the league? Well, the... Lawsuit's actually framed as a class action. So he's mm-hmm. looking to bring in more uh, black coaches uh, from around the league, assistant coaches or head coaches who have been fired and trying to get new jobs, as well as uh, candidates for general manager positions who have experienced similar sham interviews or just evidence that, um, you know, that they weren't getting proper consideration or they, they've interviewed over and over again without getting a, a chance to be uh, that head coach or that offensive coordinator or go from offensive coordinator to head coach. And if we look back, I mean, just the statistics over the history of the NFL on how few black coaches there have been. I mean, right now, uh, the league's approximately 70% people of color, um, including at least 58% who identify as black, according to um, the study at the University of Central Florida. And yet there's, like I said before, there's only one uh, black coach in the league right now. There was only three at the end of last or during this season, two of which were fired, one being Flores himself. So, uh, and, and you can see there's there's been less than two dozen black head coaches over the past 25 years. Uh, and, and that's after the first black head coach was hired in the modern era in 1989, after going almost 45 years without a black head coach at all. So there's a definitely you look at it, there's a dearth here. It raises some questions. And this is not new. People have known about it. And and black coaches have been complaining about this for years. Yeah. So, I mean, since this lawsuit came out, I feel like I've read 
tons of personal testimonials from former black coaches and former black players in the NFL who have said that this is widely known. Uh, but what is the NFL actually saying? Or have any individual teams within the league responded? Well, the NFL has denied these this lawsuit. Um, they say they take diversity very seriously um, and that they, they're, quote, deeply committed to ensuring equitable employment practices and continuing to make progress, providing equitable opportunities throughout organizations, uh, end quote. Uh, so, but I mean, they've obviously recognized that there is a problem by trying to introduce the Rooney role to begin with, uh, to try to increase the number of black coaches. So they, so they recognize that there is somewhat a problem there with how few there are. Um, both the Giants and Brian Flores' former team, the Dolphins, have denied the allegations. The Giants said that they, um, you know, that they interviewed a, group, a diverse group of candidates and they ultimately went with who they thought was most qualified, that being Brian Dable, who was the offensive coordinator for the um, Buffalo Bills, who've had uh, a couple really good seasons. And uh, the Broncos have also denied that they had, that they did anything wrong and said that they had extensive conversations and they had a three and a half hour interview with Flores where they, they got into all kinds of information. So they're all kind of denying it. I, I think where Flores' suit really cuts to the chase here, though, is like all these individual teams will have these reasons. But at what point do like, you know, you flip a coin 100 times and it turns up one way 99% of the 99 times, something here is not chance. Uh, so it, whether it's implicit bias or over, or, you know, explicit racism, you know, that's what this is trying to expose. Yeah, these kinds of suits are very difficult to prove in a lot of ways, but it certainly sheds light on this being an issue in the in the sports world in NFL. Do you see this as limited to a sports story or, you know, my spidey senses as a person who covers a lot of employment stuff is that this is almost par for the course in some industries, unfortunately? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, racial issues in sports ha has been a longstanding problem, just as it has been in society. Um, but I think, you know, from the employment attorneys that I talked to in this story, they say that um, while this is very high profile in the NFL, um, this is something that uh, Black people across, in workplaces across America are experiencing. And that a lot of lot more work needs to be done to make sure that uh, these Black candidates are, and candidates, minority candidates are getting proper consideration for these roles, these decision-making roles and, and higher level roles within uh, companies and organizations across the country. Zach, um, this is going to be one that I think is going to go on for quite some time. There seems to be a lot of interest about such a high-profile suit. So I uh, expect to read a lot of reporting from you. Thanks for coming to explain it. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me on. to end our show is something offbeat and i have a very important question for the group do you believe in ghosts okay how much time do we have here <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna take that as a yes because i could talk about this forever i love ghost stories love sure them. me too i believe that people experience things but the theory as it stands doesn't vibe with my true uh worldview which is that we're living 
we're obviously living in a simulation. So, I, okay, Haley, I'm putting a pin in that, and we will get back to your simulation theory <laughs> in a future be, episode. For that'll sure. be next week. Yeah. Dean, are you our skeptic, or are you also a semi-believer? I, I would say, I guess I'm also a ghost agnostic. I feel like that's maybe what ghost you're doing, Haley. Yeah, um, nice. You know. Yeah. So I, I could still believe there's there's plenty of time for me to be haunted, I'm sure. Well, let me <laughs> pivot us to why we're talking about this on our legal podcast. Um, <laughs> All I, right. <laughs> I so rarely have any interest in talking about attorney Michael Avenatti, but I do have some things to talk about today that happened during his criminal case, alleging that he defrauded adult film actress Stormy Daniels because a chunk of Avenatti's time questioning her was spent on the paranormal. And uh, Stormy Daniels does, in fact, believe in ghosts. Absolutely fantastic. I'm so excited. <laughs> but So how did this play into the case? Or did that have anything to do with what's underlying this lawsuit or no? <laughs> Not at all. So let's okay. <laughs> buzz real fast about past what the lawsuit's about and get into the hauntings. That's what I'm really here for. So right. just top line so people know what we're talking about. Everybody learned Mike Avenatti's name back when he began representing Stormy Daniels in a lawsuit against Donald Trump. This was several years ago. She was trying to get out of a non-disclosure deal she had signed before the 2016 election. She had agreed to keep quiet about what she alleged was a sexual relationship with Trump. The current case actually charges Avenatti with wire fraud and aggravated identity theft for using a letter that he purported, allegedly purported to be from Stormy Daniels to trick a literary agency she'd signed a book deal with into sending him a pretty hefty $300,000 portion of her book advance. As of this recording, the jury's still deliberating in the case, so we got to the end of it. But boy, oh boy, was the court reporting fun along the way. Avenatti's representing himself, and after Stormy Daniels took the stand to testify about this alleged fraud against her, his cross-exam was essentially designed to impugn her credibility, and he got at that in some crazy ways. Man, I always forget. There's so much going on with his case that I always forget he's representing himself. That's just... And that's a relatively new development, right? Didn't he just, in this past few weeks, he fired all of his lawyers? Yeah, he at some point previously had lawyers. um, You know, as with this whole story, a lot of messy parts, but I don't want to just circle you back around to ghosts. Um, Of course. I will say... Yeah, I will say first, he did quiz her about a bunch of pretty terrible statements that that Stormy Daniels had made about him and how she wanted him to be assaulted in prison. So there was plenty of vulgarity and lots of color in this trial. The stories about it are very interesting to read if you're if you have any interest in what's going on with the case. But I just want to take down through a long list of things Avenatti questioned Stormy Daniels on that are related to ghosts. First. Her claim that she can see and speak to dead people. Oh, my God. Can she? Uh, Well, her response was that um, she has said that in the past. And she's part of a project called Spooky Babes. It's focused on paranormal activity. It's going to be some kind of... It's a proposal for some kind of TV show, I think. So oh, this feels wow. like a parody. I feel like she is she trolling us. Uh, she's always trolling us a little, okay. but a, apparently a lot of what Avenatti pulled from was not just his close relationship with her as her former attorney and having had many conversations with her, but also a lot of stuff from the Spooky Babes website. So he pulled a lot of direct quotes from her from there and asked about it. 
Amber, were you, did the company um, content filtering system block you from going to school? <laughs> I will babes? say, I will say the one time in my journalistic career where I was like, I am not doing my due diligence on this. I will take the court reporting <laughs> at, at its face value and not look up spooky babes. So That's I don't wise. know. I don't know what else, what's on that website, but listeners <laughs> at your own peril, go check it out, I guess. Um, so Avenatti asked about, like I said, can she speak to dead people? Her answer, yes. Uh, whether... A dark entity entered her home through a portal. Oh, no. <laughs> a portal, you guys. I this hope not. Okay. And her response? <laughs> that's what a medium told her. <laughs> so, guys. Okay. okay. Well, that's that's hearsay. Then. Well, uh, we... look. Look. It, well, maybe. But I'm starting to mull over in my mind if we could write um, a horror movie that just centers around whatever's going on in Stormy Daniel's house because <laughs> yeah I mean there's a portal she's talked to medium she can talk to dead people there's a dark entity coming out of the portal I mean it's every schlocky horror movie I've ever seen wow when it rains it pours paranormal <laughs> absolutely um, he also asked her about unexplainable and frightening experiences in her New Orleans home, which also the note that it's New Orleans really tickles me because, of course, there are ghosts there. Of course, there are. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, he asked her about poltergeist phenomena, shadow figures, sounds and voices invading her life like a, quote, predatory animal, which is how she had described it. This was an entire season of American Horror Story. <laughs> it was. It was. I wanted She needs that to move. <laughs> Here's my favorite one, though, because it is, again, another horror trope. And I don't know if I've ever talked about this with you guys, but I'm a big horror movie buff. So this whole story just tickles me to no end. He asked her about her suspicion in recent months that a doll named Susan had been talking to her. His question was, you heard her call you mommy, mommy. And she responded, I don't know if it was her. We assume. Oh God! <laughs> and that's we? the conjuring right there. <laughs> I, I also want to know who we is. Is it her and her medium? I would assume it's the medium or <laughs> maybe it's her else. and the dark entity. Right? Yeah, the other ghosts. But yeah. you're right, Haley. I immediately thought of Annabelle from The Conjuring because, of course, I did. Um, well, I, as one must. I'm gonna end the episode and immediately go pen the screenplay. It's gonna become a big October hit. Absolutely. Well, that's what I told my medium anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being with me today, guys. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphics designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Zach Zagger, and our contributing reporter, Pete Brush. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That really does help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, including some spooky stories that include Stormy Daniels and her New Orleans house, just check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.